Thank you very much indeed for inviting me here tonight. This is the second time I've been to Ashaw. The first time it was still a seminary and I was invited here by Father John Marsland um, who I've known for far too long. I first met him when he was vice rector at the English College and it was when I was a student helper when I was doing my PhD that John started to ask me questions about the, the art and the history. What's that? Does that mean that? Would you like the keys to the archive? Yes! This was a very long time ago, or it feels like a long time ago, and it's just now, and actually largely this lecture that I'm using to bring together all the very bitty bits of archival work that I've been doing over the years, and really bring it together into what I hope will be, well... I think if there's postgraduates in the audience tonight, will be my a thesis that I can persuade um, you of an argument that joins together very disparate case studies. Now, the English College is very interesting. There's a number of histories have been written about it over the years. These histories, as is often the case, tend to be dependent on text. And they're very much the history of the largely men who have passed through the college. You could call it a kind of hagiography. Uh, Michael Williams' um, a fantastic book about the, the history of the English college really tells the story of the, the men, the rectors, the cardinal protectors who have, have passed through its, its doors. As an art historian, though, and I hesitate to say this in front of somebody like Ludmilla Jordanova, as an art historian, what interests me is the interplay between text and images. I think what we try to do as art historians and in visual culture is actually a paradox. The whole point of images is that they're not text. But what we constantly try and do and what we try, constantly try and get our poor students to do is describe in, images, is to put text to images. What a crazy thing to do. It's through the English college, it's taken me a while to realise this, it's really through the English college that I'm, I'm beginning to, I think, get a sense in my own mind about what I think is possibly going on. But as I say, if art is deliberately not text, I hope that will give me a cop-out that ultimately what I'm trying to say is on the screen here in the form of images. So I will try my best to put some, some words to the images. Now, in the English College Church today, right in the centre of Rome, above the main altarpiece, the Durante Alberti that Stefano's already referred to, is a, a text and it comes from Isaiah, and it refers to a new song, sing a new song to the Lord, and his praise from the earth, the end of the earth, ye that go down to the sea. You can see the connection with the, the missions, um, the students from the English college that went on, on the missions. But the emphasis is very much about a new way of looking at the world, a new song. In a Catholic context, in a Catholic historical context, any idea of newness, of modernness, obviously has a very particular context. It's loaded with meaning. And that's the focus, that's the theme of what I'm going to talk about tonight. The key word in that Catholic context is, okay, yes, newness, renewal, but within the much bigger and much more important message of continuity. 
of continuity. How does the, the present engage with the past? How does it take us into the future? How does the present church of the Venerable English College embody that historical idea? What I'm going to do today is look at two case studies, um, one from the 19th century and one from the 16th century, looking at how that constant change within the English College is still embodied within an institution that is always consistent. It's, it's still there. It's been there for 600 years. And that simply is a seminary, never mind the Pilgrim Hospice before. Now, I'm sure most of you know the story of the English College. It was founded in 1579 in the properties of the old English hospice right in the centre of Rome. It was founded by Gregory XIII as one of his many foreign colleges for countries where it was no longer legal to practice openly as a Roman Catholic. So Gregory XIII was trying to solve a real practical problem. If you can't be educated as a Roman Catholic, never mind as a priest, Rome had better provide these facilities. And it, Gregory XIII is behind a number of colleges which um, appear at this time. Let's see. Let me see. Oh, I'm not sure this one to work. So the English College in the print that you can see here, this is a broadsheet which was published just after um, 1585, just after the death of Gregory XIII. The English College is in the top right-hand corner. It's the grubbiest corner of this broadsheet because this broadsheet is actually in the English College archive still today. And of course, everybody who's looked at this broadsheet wants to see where the English College is. And I'll show you a detail of that um, just shortly. <coughs> The English College itself is right in the centre of Rome. I'll try and do this with the mouse. Here. This is a um, 1590s plan of Rome. So it'll give you a sense of what I'm going to talk about in, the first of, in, in my 16th century case study. It's right in the centre of Rome. So you've got the Campo dei Fiori, the Cancelleria, the great papal chancellery. This is the Chiesa Nuova, the new church which was built in the 1580s for the oratorians. This is Sant'Andrea della Valle, or what becomes Sant'Andrea della Valle, but was still the Piccolomini Palace in the 1590s. Then you've got the Jesuits just off the top of the screen in the Gesù and the Collegio Romano. So the English College is right in the middle of what's come to be known as this Third Rome. It's very much the, the urban, grubby, busy city of Rome. Popes having to concentrate on international um, diplomacy, they really hand this populated centre of Rome to these new religious orders founded in the 16th century. The English College is right in the middle of that, physically but also intellectually. Now this is the Church of St Thomas of Canterbury in Rome today, and it's actually a 19th century building though the church sits exactly on the site of the original church of the English hospice, which goes back probably to the 1450s. How did we get to this point today? And as you can say, see, it was beautifully restored in 2009. Now, in 1818, the English college reopened after a period in which the students and staff had been in exile. They'd had to um, 
come back to England while Rome had been taken over by, uh, by Napoleon's troops. 1818, they finally get back to Rome. 1819, the architect for the English college, Ascenso Servi, described the church, that 15th century church, as beyond repair. Now, there's a story always told about the English college that it was actually the French troops who stabled the horses in the English college. Um, that's not actually the case. We know from Reuters in the archive that the, the church of the English college had actually fallen apart. It was unusable from at least the beginning of the, the 18th century. There are records in the 1660s of the floor falling in in the church. We know that the floor fell in because there's a lovely letter from... Um, a, a, a particular um, monk in England who knew one of the people who was buried in the college church saying, if you find this, his front to uh, this skull, his front two teeth are missing, um, that's so-and-so, so you can get him back to... The place was a mess, and it had been a mess for a number of centuries. Now, the 19th century, particularly rich period, of course, the 1820s, we see Catholic emancipation um, in the United Kingdom. Eventually, in 1850, the English Catholic diocese are re-established. And it's in 1888 that the new college church finally is completed. And as you can see, it's a jewel box of a church. It's conceived of as a reliquary. It's a reliquary turned inside out that holds the relics of the martyrs of the English College and other English um, martyrs, including Tam Thomas of Canterbury, whose relics were moved to the English College Church in the 16th century from Santa Maria Maggiore. But it took a while to get to that 1880s situation. It was rather a complicated story. The main driver between behind the rebirth, the renewal of the English College in the 19th century was Nicholas Wiseman, of course the first Cardinal Archbishop of Westminster from 1850. Now he had been a student and a rector of the English College, so he has a particular experience. He had very particular vision of what that institution should be for and how it should represent English Catholics. Whenever I say English, by the way, I should also put in brackets after it Welsh, because English College is the college of the English and Welsh diocese, and, and it continues to be so today. So it was Wiseman who was behind the first campaign to actually provide a decent centre for the English in the middle of Rome, something that would really celebrate their presence, would actually bring it all back together again. Edward Puchin was the first architect, and obviously we're in buildings which have seen his presence and that of his father as well. In 1864, Edward Puchin wrote to the English College saying that he's on his way to Rome. Unfortunately for this, this story, in 1865, Cardinal Wiseman died. It was actually Edward Puchin who designed and had made Wiseman's tomb, which is in the, um, the crypt of Westminster Cathedral still today. But what actually happened to that story is best told through the vivid and rather passionate correspondence between Edward Puchin and the English College about the commission.
when he told me to inspire the church of Virginia. But my idea was that the English church should be rather in the distinctive marks of our own style of Gothic. Of course, as applied to the requirements of the country, rather than follow the Italian type. I imagine the windows might be fewer in number, but smaller in size than are in our own northern colours. But even this individuality may be a great measure meant by filling windows with deep stained glass, the heat being kept out by means of double glazing. The English college responded, I see every day clearer and clearer the necessity of the church in Rome, both as regards a matter of principle, a matter of necessity. If the Holy See is necessary for the unity of the church in the whole world, it certainly is necessary for the life of the church in a huge sense in England. We have need of the influence of Rome in England. This influence is the breath of life in an especial sense to the Catholicity of England. Now, the Church of St. Thomas will help towards this work to some extent. Therefore, it must be done immediately. The Church is in our hands, and I trust will turn out to be one of the most successful, as well as being one of the cheapest churches ever built. I hope to forward Dr. Neve by reduced plans for St. Thomas's towards the end of the week. I have heard from Putin who says that he must throw away all his work upon the places he has hitherto made. However, it's certain now that the church will be built. But on the 30th of December in 1865, it was reported in the weekly periodical The Builder that after all that has been said and done respecting the new church to the English College in Rome, the subscription for which has long been in progress after the announcement of this decision for a Gothic type of architecture and the all but decided commission of the work to Mr. Pugin, we hear that the plan has undergone considerable modification, that the Gothic has been abandoned and the Byzantine style preferred, that no English architect but a Roman, Count Vespignani, long engaged by this government and the author of many church restorations in this city, is chosen for the undertaking desired to be conspicuous for scale and splendour. Now, Pugin was furious with the English college. The manner in which the world was taken out of my hands was not only ungracious, but actually unjust. You say that £10,000 was the sum proposed to be expended, but you seem to have forgotten that I distinctly told you that a building of the size and style you required could not possibly be erected for £115,000 which should hire and the Italian community agreed. You are October 1867, then in April 1868. Your kind letter of November 4th was so thoroughly unsatisfactory that I waited up to the present time hoping to hear further from you. 
Let's take that for values. And now we're going to write to propose that I should receive my commission on the sum name. But although I feel deeply aggrieved the manner in which I was treated, I have no wish to insist upon my legal rights, but I should be glad to have the matter fairly and finally settled without delay. After a considerable deal of consideration, I have made the offer to Putin of £100 now and another £100 within five years. As yet, he has not accepted. Nevertheless, he is finishing his designs as he wishes them always to remain in the English College. This, I have promised him, would be the case. They will be beautiful. I have just seen the designs of the architect who succeeded I should not hesitate in saying that such a change is a disgrace to everyone concerned. The design is utterly worthless in every respect, but the work of the Signor, the professional gentleman in question, not only in your case, but in anything he has touched, shows a wealth of decadence which can only be described as deplorable. If my work had been replaced by something more worthy on the occasion, I should have had a small right to complain. I can no longer repress my indignation. If the building is like the view, it is not a church, and it does not even pretend to be a collegiate chapel. I now enter my protest against it. Nobody will deny many of you sign about it. What single characteristic mark has it to show of its origin? I have been most shamefully treated in this manner, but whatever the treatment has been towards myself personally, it has been more towards that of the college and the cause. The reason why you could not be employed as architect was that I mentioned to you when we met at Hanover Lodge. Circumstances obliged us in Rome to come to it, which I alluded to in our conversation. For my part, I thought I said that the building, building the Church of St. Thomas of Canterbury at Rome was a mistake. What was the use of building? The 336th church in Rome, in Rome. The true thing would have been to have sold off the property and have founded the college in the Thank you very much, Mr. Putin. And that's a problem that probably still floats around today. Why have a college in Rome at all? It's something that I think Ashaw has is direct um, evidence uh, for um, since it was built obviously in England and we still have the colleges in, in Rome and in Spain today. So Virginio Vespignani took over the college project in the, 15, in the 1860s almost as soon as Wiseman himself had died. The images that you have on the screen just now are two of the beautiful drawings, architectural drawings that Edward Pugin did indeed send to the college, the English College in Rome, and they do still survive in the archive today. And it's important that they do because that was the, the terms in which they were, were given to the college. I've put up some snaps of St. Coleman's Cathedral in, in Cove because Edward Pugin, it's the next big project that Edward Pugin goes on to after the English College. Now the windows are a lot bigger, but I think it's the St. Thomas of Canterbury project that actually feeds the designs for the cathedral that he eventually builds in, in Cove. It's a particularly beautiful church and a particularly beautiful site. For those who um, had to immigrate to America, it would be the, about the last thing they saw 
as they got onto, the, onto their boats and set off across the Atlantic. Okay, so in 1865, we've got a new architect, Virginio Vespignani, has taken over. In 1866, the cross was planted in, to mark where the altar was going to be in the new college church of English College. Just a day after the, the cross was planted, Pius IX Pio Nono inaugurated the church by laying the foundation stone, or rather he held us at the end of the silken thread so that the stone could be lowered down 35 feet. Because of the area in which the English College stands, it's very close to the Tiber in Rome. Um, foundations for buildings have to be particularly deep in this area. It's one of the, the reasons that it was so expensive and it took so long for a new church to be built. In 1869, the year after the Pugin correspondence ends and the year that his drawings eventually came to the college archive, we have two photographs that were taken of the progress that had been made on the building of the, the new college church. And you can see how far they'd got. The walls were up, the um, columns of the nave arcade um, had been erected. Lovely little details in these photographs. You've got these um, labourers up here. Obviously just relaxing for their tea break being made to pose. Lovely little insight into the history of photographer, uh, photography here and the rector and vice rector appear um, to take centre stage in the scene. Now one of the problems one of the, the things that really got underneath the skin of Edward Pugin and of a number of, of his associates, it was a very controversial project and it played out in the, the periodical and um, journalistic literature in, in England. It was a very public case. But what we've got here is completely different senses of, of a historical past. The two men, Pugin, and obviously he's the eldest son of August, Augustus North, uh, Welby Northmore Pugin, and Virginio Vespignani came from opposite sides of the argument. For Pugin, and you heard in the correspondence, and for his family, style matters. Style matters, and particularly the Gothic style matters, because it represents the truth of the Catholic Church. The truth goes back to its divine inheritance. It's an argument that you cannot, you can't counter. Style absolutely matters. But for Virginio Vespignani, what was more important as an architect was that all of the many parts of the college church and the site came together to create uh, an illusion, to, to create a sense of the past. There's nothing about historical authenticity here, which we might recognise if we're historians. This is about staging the past. It's not about recreating the past. Now, I think one of the best examples for that from the English College, and this is a detail of the beautiful floor in the English College, probably my favourite part of the, the um, 1880s church. The, the floor, I think, gives you a good sense of the difference, the distance between Pugin and Vespignani. Now, the world that Pugin was coming from was very much the England of, England of John Ruskin. 
John Ruskin himself described himself as a drains man. If you want to look after uh, an, an old site, an old building, just stop it from falling down. Look after the drains, keep them unblocked, don't let it fall down any more than it already has. Preser- preservation. Preservation, conservation. That's what Ruskin and Pugin, that's the world they're coming from. But the more continental sense of restoration is about revival. You see it in France with Viollet-le-Duc, so for example the Chateau of Pierrefonds, where you have some beautiful, extensive medieval castles. They're turned into Camelot. It's interesting when you look at um, television programmes like one of my favourites recently, Merlin, which was shot in Pierrefonds, it's a Viollet-le-Duc recreation, the way that the, the interchange between the story of Arthur and his round table and what's a 19th century reconstruction of the medieval past. You get these, these lovely sort of tensions and little dances, historical dances working together. What this Virginio Vespignani was up to wasn't up there for about some kind of historical truth. What he's trying to do in his church, New Church of English College, is stage setting. The rich decorations are there to inspire emotion. It's a glorious past reborn. So you're a 19th century British person going to Rome, somebody in Rome going to the English College Church. You go into that space of the Church of St. Thomas of Canterbury and you feel what it's like to be part of that history, part of that culture. So it's staged, it's about an emotional reaction. It's not about historical authenticity. We know that it's all true and it all lines up and it's all verifiable. Absolutely not the case for Virginio Vespignani. Vespignani is behind the restoration of many, many churches throughout Italy, and he's particularly evident in Rome. This is one of my favourite examples, which is Santa Maria in Trastevere, beautiful, beautiful church. And you can see on the right-hand side, actually, a postcard from Santa Maria in Trastevere, which is the cosmetesque pavement of that ancient basilica. No, it's not. This is Virginio Vespignani's pavement. It includes tesserae from the original pavement, but we know from the work of the art historian Dale Kinney that the floor of the ancient basilica of Santa Maria Tristevere was a terrible state. You could not walk across it without tripping up. What Virginio Vespignani's done is take parts that he could and he's inserted them into 19th century sections it's very pristine, it's, a, re- it's a, a historical restaging. It's not a, here's all of the bits, let's put them back together in exactly the way that they would have been originally in the 12th century, not at all. He's giving us an impression of what that 12th century pavement would have been like. I have no evidence for this, but I would like to think that some of the tesserae from those cosmetesque floors, and he did restore a number of them in Rome, ended up part of the floor in the English College. I spent a lot of time staring at the floor in the English College shirt. I recommend it to you, it's wonderful. Especially if you're into patchwork, it's absolutely fantastic. But even Virginio Vespignani, an uncompromising architect who's behind the way that a lot of so-called medieval churches in Rome look today, 
Even Virginio Vespignani's plans eventually had to be compromised, and the compromise was money, as well as the political context. Now, the first plans included a very large apse extension, which would have been designed to house the the choir. It was designed to house the community, because this was envisaged as an English parish church in the centre of Rome, not just as a seminary church. The English College also has the Martyr's Chapel, which um, it uses for its uh, daily prayer cycle. So this space has a, a public aspect to it. But it was actually Pius IX in 1867 who halted the progress of building. What happened was that staff in the English College were determined to get on with building this extended apse, but there was a big problem, and the big problem was the rental income which comes with the English College, and still does today. It's an important part of the sustainability of these institutions. Practicalities always kick in. So this building here, which is number 48, Via de Monserrato, would have had to be demolished to enable this extended nave to be built. It never was, and that's what it looked like around about 1700. This is the the part of the the college which goes back to the 16th, 17th century, the Cardinal's um, Palace. And you can see the wall there was never actually completed. So Virginio Vespignani's church was only built in terms of the nave, The whole thing was never completed. Now, that's actually rather a fortunate... um, There's a considerable silver lining here. What happens in 1870 was of fundamental importance for this project. 1870, we have both the First Vatican Council, and it's Virginio Vespignani who's responsible for designing and supervising the building of the staging for the delegates for the Vatican Council. We also have the Risorgimento, where the Rome is wrested from the papacy and becomes the capital of the new Italian state, of the new Italian nation. Now, the English College and its staff were incredibly wily, incredibly clever and wily in this period. At this time, the Risorgimento um, governments were doing their level best to confiscate properties from ecclesiastical institutions. The English College managed to keep hold of its rental properties, including number 48 and its villa at Monte Porzio. Actually an astonishing um, achievement, probably greater, dare I say it, even than the architecture. But the silver lining for this halted plan, Virginio Vespignani's plan, is the fact that the apse was never built As you can see with what was intended here, there's no place for the martyr's picture, the 16th century altarpiece of the English college. The apse would have been concave. It doesn't even have a flat wall to hang the martyr's picture on it. Fortunately, because that apse was never added, the church, the nave, terminates in a blank screen wall. Now, Whoever decided on that compromise, I think, did something very clever. I'd like to think did something very clever. I think they went to the archive of the English College, and I think they looked up the account books for the 16th century when the martyr's picture was actually 
put in the 15th century church in the first place. And they realised that the martyr's picture in the 1680s, when it was put up in the church, it was put up on a background of yellow silk taffeta. And that, I'd like to think, is why this blank wall in English College looks the way it does. It's actually completely authentic to the way that the martyr's picture was originally installed in the 16th century church. So although Virginio Vespignani's grand vision was never essentially completed, the result of it is that we've got these two remarkable periods coming together in the 19th century church of the English College of St. Thomas of Canterbury. And it's the martyr's picture that I'm going to turn to now, which is so important in the, the life, the story of the English College. And it, it will always be. The martyr's picture was commissioned from an artist, Durante Alberti. Now, Durante Alberti, you probably never heard of, almost certainly never heard of. He's an incredibly important artist in the late 16th century. He's much more successful, he's much more acceptable than somebody like Michelangelo, who's very controversial. He's much more productive than somebody like Federico Barocci because he works a lot faster, for a start. Durante Alberti becomes one of the first principes, one of the first principles of the Accademia di San Luca, which is the first formal artist's academy in Rome, and he delivers lectures about you know, how to be a good artist in Rome. He described himself, though, the martyr's picture in the English College in Rome as his very best work. I've taken a number of, of friends and fellow art historians into the English College and they're usually blown away by Durante Alberti's um, martyr's picture. One um, art historian described it as the best example of Pagliotti's um, art history that, that she'd ever seen. Don't worry, I'll tell you a bit more about Gabriele Pagliotti in just a moment. It's a very clever mo moment in art history but it's especially clever in terms of the history of the English College. In 1576, an apostolic visitation took place in the English College. Now, it was done partly covertly because what they were actually doing was trying to establish on behalf of William Allen if the English hospice could support an English college being set up in its properties. Could these two, two organisations, a hospice and a college, coexist? But the apostolic visitation said, you've not got any pictures, where are they? And especially, you have to have an altarpiece, get it done. The next apostolic visitation takes place in 1585, this time under Sixtus V, who was more important in making sure the English College didn't have too much money. But the visitor did actually approve of the altarpiece as we can see it today. The painting was commissioned and produced in 1581, actually very quickly. It com combines the established iconography, the established symbols of the English College itself. The English College comprises three separate hospices. First of all, the Holy Trinity Hospice, which was established by the shepherds in 1371, so this is back to the 14th century. Then another confraternity devoted to Thomas of Canterbury, which is first mentioned again in the 1370s. 
Another hospice, an English hospice in Rome, was set up in Trastevere in 1396, and that hospice was to St Edmund, St Edmund of East Anglia. So what Durante Alberti has done is combine the vestiges, the dedications, what are now the dedications, three dedications of the English College Church. The Holy Trinity, and the visitor in 1576 instructs that the altar priest should be a Holy Trinity and saints, but it's a Holy Trinity with St Thomas of Canterbury on the left-hand side and Edmund of East Anglia on the, sorry, on the right-hand side, Thomas on the left-hand side. That iconography you find throughout the archives, throughout the English College buildings, for example, in an account book of, of Reginald Pohl. But Durante Alberti also brings together some of the emblems of the big figures who were behind the English College project in the first place, and especially Gregory XIII. I've heard a lot of different ideas about this opening, this arched opening in the centre of the altarpiece. Is it what Wiseman was referring to in the middle of the 19th century about his, his letter from out with the Flaminian Gate? Is the, the, the Flaminian Gate that the students head up north? I actually think it goes back to one of the emblems that were um, associated with Gregory XIII. In the 16th century, a great period of emblem books, of symbols, complex interactions between texts and images. There are books of these formulas. Um, you see some of them actually being published in the form of medals, papal medals. This is a detail of one of them, which you can possibly just about see, which was issued at, um, during Gregory XIII's pontificate. In the centre of an archway, of a doorway, there's the dragon, the dragon is the symbol of the Bon Compagni family, which is the papal family of Gregory XIII. And it has the emblem, he enables, he does not prohibit. Basically, come on in guys, we'll look after you. And that's what I think this is referring to. There's a number of um, people have pointed out the dragon that seems to appear inside the, the arch here I can't actually see a dragon myself so I'm not even going to show you a detail of it because I think it's actually a much bigger idea I think the whole point is of Pope as gatekeeper remember Pope, apostolic succession, St Peter, keys the kingdom of heaven, the Pope is the gatekeeper he's the gatekeeper to Rome and we've got Thomas of Canterbury and Edmund of East Anglia bringing people into Rome and back into the faith Come on in, guys, we'll look after you. That's what this is about. But at exactly the same moment when the English College painting is being made, this Holy Trinity with, with saints, it's referred to in the account books and in the visitors' records, something remarkable happens to the staff and students of the English College. 1580, we have an important mission from Rome led by Edmund Campion, usually based in Prague, but he comes to Rome. He picks up a couple of um, people from the colleges in Rome. One of them is Ralph Sherwin. And they head back in a small group to England. They set about in England doing what a lot of these little groups did. They went out in the country. Edmund Campion, fantastic preacher. He would go and preach sermons. Um, the little group that accompanied him, including Robert Persons, very important um, writer in this, this period, becomes um, rector of the English College Church. Robert Persons is the fixer. 
He's the guy who's with this little group in England in 1580. He's making sure that Edmund Campion's sermons are being printed and then distributed. Unfortunately, Edmund Campion and two of his colleagues are arrested. Robert Persons manages to escape. He manages to get out of the country. Now, this is exactly the same moment that the English College altarpiece is being commissioned and painted. December 1581, so that's right at the end of the year when we know the English College Church, the, the, um, sorry, the English College altarpiece is completed, is exactly the moment when Edmund Campion and his colleagues are tried and then executed in England. What seems to happen is recorded in some of the printed versions of the martyr's picture, what comes to be known as the martyr's picture, which were distributed at the same time as the paintings are being made. I'll say a little bit more about that just very shortly. The earliest versions of this print have your Holy Trinity and Saints, as you would expect. What happens in subsequent editions is that the martyrs, these angels, are added in the background, emphasising the martyrdom of Thomas and of Edmund. And it's at this point, 1581, just into 1582, that this Holy Trinity with saints seems to become the martyr's picture as it's now still known today. Uh, One of the terrible things, but I suppose interesting things, if you're a a historian, about the the trial and execution of the the young men who were going back to England was that they were never... You get a polemic between the two sides. One side is saying that they're being executed for treason and they're killed according to a traitor's death. They're hung, drawn and quartered. Very nasty way to die. The whole point of it is that it's very public. It also means that there's nothing left of the individuals. It's a very tidy way to make sure that there's, there's no way of any supporters having something to celebrate. It's waste disposal, if you like. But on the Catholic side, obviously, these men are not executed for treason. This isn't a political action. This is a religious action. And they're martyred. They become martyrs. That's a very important, it's a very meaningful word, not just in the English college in this period, but also in 16th century Rome, post-Trent. And I want to say a little bit about this post-Tridentine context. It's where the, the images and the words, I think, come together. Now, how does the martyr's picture actually work in this context? It is an astonishing work of art. There's nothing like it. In art historical terms, in Rome, we have high renaissance with Leonardo, Michelangelo, Raphael. Then we have what's often called the Mannerist period. And then still today, some art historians will call the 1580s up to 1600 late mannerism or countermaniera, if if you like, in the Italian phrase. I don't think these style labels are actually of any use to us. They're implied in retrospect onto something that's much, much more visceral, if you like. Now, 1563 is the closure of the Council of Trent. Art historians, including me, 
make a huge deal out of one of the very last decrees of the Council of Trent, which is about relics and sacred images. Now, at the Council of Trent, it finishes very, very quickly. Everybody thought the Pope was going to die, so they close the Council, head down to Rome, just in case there's going to be a papal election. One of the last decrees is this decree on images. It really is an afterthought. It almost certainly would not have been written at all if it hadn't been for a very late arrival of the French delegation. The French were having to counter a, a real threat from the Huguenots, from the Protestants in France, and they really needed a strong statement about images. So the decree on images at the Council of Trent simply reasserts the decree of the Second Nicene Council. It says, basically, images are fine. Get over it. They're fine. It's in the next couple of decades, including in the decade when our martyr's picture is made, that we see some of these ideas out of the Council of Trent percolating, if you like, into some quite remarkable artistic visions. And again, the whole point is this is pictures. It's, it's not texts. Gabriele Pagliotti was Bishop of Bologna. He is a close associate of the... He's a close associate of those who have been involved in the Council of Trent. He takes the Council of, of Trent's ideas and he makes it into a text that's going to actually be useful to artists. He never unfortunately finished that text, but we do have two out of the five chapters published. And what he says is, yes, as the Council of Trent says, images are important. They have a role to play in the church. But he deals with the problem of idolatry by saying works of art are not relics in themselves. They're not things that are worshipped in themselves and of themselves. They are stimuli. They are tools. And this is how it works, he argues. Works of art, artists, what they have to do is engage with you, the viewer, the audience. And all the writing about art in this period isn't about artists so much as about the effect that works of art have on audience. What a work of art like Durante Alberti's Martyr's Picture has to do is grab you by all five of your senses. It's a complete bodily experience. It draws you into it through the senses. So you can see the beautiful soft textures of the different fabrics. You can hear the stillness of the, the mourning angels. There's a silence about this, this image. Never mind the fact of what, of what you can see. Sight is only one of the five senses that you bring to these works of art. Pagliotti says, is, right, okay, I've got works of art, grab you by the, their senses, they're physical, so that's how you're meant to engage with them. That's the first of the steps. The second step is then you start to think about it, you start to process it mentally. This is where the intellect kicks in. And that then leads on to the third stage, which is into, is in, into spiritual enlightenment. So can you see what Pagliotti's done? He's left the work of art, the physical work of art, that idolatry problem, way down at the bottom of his hierarchy. He's done something very clever. What that does then is reassert the power of the visual. Don't worry if you can't see this. It's, um, us art historians need to uh, prove ourselves every so often. 
Now, in 1564, so about two decades before Gabriele Paleotti's um, text about what, how artists should be producing uh, works of art, we've got a very important text, which I've, I've just been working on with, with Michael Burry in Edinburgh. <clears throat> it's Giovanni Andrea's Giulio's Dialogue and the Errors of Pictures. It's usually used by art historians because Giulio says an awful lot about Michelangelo's Last Judgment, that's the subject of another lecture. Giulio was a priest. He's a, um, a diocesan priest from further north, uh, from north of, of Rome, uh, Camerino. He writes a dialogue which is putting different points of view about what, what are images for. And his emphasis is very much on audience. But something I think is particularly important is what he says about the role of images in relationship to memory, in relationship to tradition. And at the bottom of this quote, he says, Now consider this, what must Lutheran churches be without paintings? And indeed all Lutherans have shown how they have erased completely from their hearts that memory. And this is a theme that recurs in Giulio's dialogue. It's about a shared sense of identity, a shared sense of tradition. He's not actually doesn't feel the need to say anything about images and idolatry. He's telling about images and the role of artists in this sense of shared tradition. As an art historian, I think that the most important of the Tridentine decrees for artists isn't the one of, from um, 1563 about images. It's actually a much earlier and therefore more important decree from 1546 which is on the acceptance of sacred books and apostolic traditions. And what it does is it asserts the unwritten traditions of the church that have come down to us. They're preserved in unbroken sequence in the Catholic church. Now, looking back at the martyr's picture, what Durante Alberti has done is make sure that he's asserting the continuity of that institution, bringing together the Holy Trinity and the two saints. He's using very conventional visual language. He's not changing anything. But the way he brings it together in a coherent whole is quite new. Now, these are quite complex ideas. So I want to finish off with a last um, series of examples to, to take this a bit further about this relationship between text and image, this sense of shared identity, of tradition, continuity. Now... Alongside the martyr's picture in the English College Church, just a few years later was added a series of rather grisly frescoes. There were a number of fresco cycles added to specifically Jesuit churches in the 1580s by an artist called Niccolo um, Cirquignani, also known as Il Pomerancio, one of several artists known as Il Pomerancio. These were um, reproduced in the tribune of the present-day church, but actually the frescoes had probably been lost as early as 1700. It's one of the very clever things about the English College, and Wiseman identified this, Persons identified this. The English College, because of where it is, it has a visibility that no college is going to have because of its proximity to Rome. And it still today does have that, that sort of diplomatic function. 
um, Archbishops of Canterbury even, Anglican Archbishops of Canterbury, when they go to Rome, they tend to stay in the English College. It has a very important um, ecumenical role, very interesting institution. There's a communications um, campaign is part of that, still is today, that's what the 2009 exhibition and conferences were about. Niccolo Pomerancio was designing the fresco cycle for the English College, not just to paint on walls, but also to turn into a printed book known as the Trophy of the English Church, the Trophies of the English Church. Now, the Trophies of the English Church are its martyrs, And here you've got a detail of one of the pages, which I thought was particularly relevant because it's midway between Edinburgh, where I am, and Durham, where you are. And this is St. Ebba, as in St. Ab's head. First of all, on the left-hand side, Pomerancio's uh, preparatory drawing, his compositional um, study for uh, what was eventually painted. The middle scene is a reproduction of the, the, the printed version. The printed book of frescoes from English College were circulated as far as India, though the Jesuits were very careful not to let them to fall into too many people's hands because of the, the details of martyrdoms. They were worried might give the natives some ideas about how to bump off Christians. It was all a bit too glory. And then on the right-hand side is the 19th century version re- reproduction of the, the original martyr cycle. There are two themes in Niccolò Circhignani's um, Trophies of English Martyrs, and St. Ebba represents one of them. The theme here is that royal, British royals have to be subservient to the Pope. They have to look after the true faith. So St. Ebba, who is of royal blood, and the inscriptions tell us this, she is martyred to preserve the unity of the church. Now, this is in the middle of the, the Tudors, Henry VIII and Elizabeth I, absolutely not doing that. It's a very important theme in the martyr cycle. The second theme is about martyrdom, and it's a shift in the concept of martyrdom that happens in the 16th century. Martyrs up to the 16th century, up to the, Protest- the period of the Protestant Reformation, if you like, they're, they're personal witnesses to um, an individual relationship with the divine. In the 16th century, it becomes political. It's about the very unity of the church. It's about the broken body of Christ. Must a Christ die in every age for those with no imagination, as um, Bernard Shaw uh, puts it slightly later on. And these martyrdoms are given a contemporary relevance. John Fisher, Thomas Moore, Margaret Pohl are all represented towards the end of the cycle. And right at the end of the cycle we have various forms of death inflicted in Catholics. And then the last of the martyrdom scenes is a dot, 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 who's next? Interestingly, the central scene here which just says various forms of death inflicted on Catholics, was used in the Babington trial. The Babington plot was the one that led eventually to the execution of Mary Stuart. This print was used as evidence of the fact that all Catholics lie. Because of course, Elizabeth, the First Minister, said, we would never address somebody in bearskins and attack them with dogs. No, we hanged on and quartered them instead. 
So these were known about, these have a contemporary relevance. But it's a historical model that's being told through images, and it's absolutely enshrined, embodied by the English College Church. And again, forgive me, I'm trying to put words onto something that has to work visually. So Pagliotti, that Bishop of Bologna, he tells us in his treatise, images sculpt what they teach into the panels of memory. What he does is he locates vision, the sense of vision, closest to memory. So pictures are particularly important because you remember them. That's why they're so important. That's why Pagliotti, a bishop of Bologna, needs to write about this, because we have to get this right. And of course, after the Council of Trent, the job is given to the diocesan bishops of actually keeping an eye on what's being painted in churches. They didn't do that until after the Council of Trent. It wasn't their job. Now, in the same intellectual context, we have the writing of the Annales Ecclesiastici by Cesare Baronio. Now, Cesare Baronio is a very important historian. He's also a follower of Filippo Neri. Now, these guys, their first oratory, these are the founders of the oratorians, the first oratory is actually, you can practically touch it from the front door of the English College. And there's direct contact between Filippo Neri, Cesare Baronio. Cesare Baronio actually incorporates the example of the English martyrs into, into his texts. There's a direct relationship here. What Cesare Baronio does is try and wrest a historical argument that the Protestants have been winning in the form of the Magdeburg centuries. The Magdeburg centuries, published in the middle of the 16th century, what it does is it splits history into centuries, which is what it's called the Magdeburg centuries, and it shows how Roman Catholicism is an aberration. How if we look through the sources, you can find there's no evidence for the Pope. There's no reference to Popes in the Bible. And that's what the Magdeburg centuries do. If you like the, the Catholic, the Roman side, they take their eye off the ball. And it's Cesare Baronio, some 20 years after the Magdeburg centuries are published, Cesare Baronio is charged by Filippo Neri to write a Catholic history of the church. And what he does is incredibly important. I think one of the most important um, actions by a historian for us art historians, he says that art, artifacts, are evidence of a truth, of a historical truth, and that historical truth is the apostolic succession. Okay, the Protestants can do what they like with Augustine and the Bible, but in Rome, we've got catacombs, we've got pictures, we've got porphyry stones, which were known in the 16th century as pools of martyrs' blood. The, the, you could actually see physically where actual people had died. So physical evidence becomes part of this, this polemic. How does that stand then in the English College? Well, it's about the relationship between the altarpiece and these frescoes that are made at the same time and they come out of the same intellectual circles. These guys knew one another. The English College is an intellectual powerhouse. It is now, it was then in the 16th century. Now, this is a detail of um, the 1630s plan of the church, which will give you a sense of the, the space that was being um, decorated. So here's the, the high altarpiece where the martyr's picture was. 
We don't know exactly where the frescoes were that um, Nicolò Circignani designed. There's a number of possibilities if we look at some of the, the comparative um, examples of frescoes in Santo Stefano Rotondo, Santa Polinari, for example. This is a print from much later in the 17th century, which shows William Good, who's often associated with the original project for the Martyr's Picture. He basically um, provided the money for a lot of the artistic campaigns in the 16th century. Personally, I'm not sure about his precise role. But in the 1690s, we have this representation of William Good, dressed as a Jesuit, though he was never actually professed as a Jesuit, talking to students in the English college and using the frescoes this text tells us he commissioned. And it makes it look as though the frescoes were in the, um, actually in the aisles of the church. There are other records, though, from the 16th century which suggest that the frescoes were actually above the nave arcade, so much more visible. But we're not altogether sure here. I think what is important, though, is the way that the images are working together, and they're, they're telling us a historical pattern. This probably seems obvious to us today, obvious to us today, but if you think what you might know about Renaissance art history, where you have churches which have lots of endowed altarpieces, they're very fragmentary. So you'll have the Medici family commissioned that, the Strozzi family commissioned this, but each space, each altar is treated quite separately. There's a seismic shift in the 1580s in Rome where the interiors of churches are treated as coherent wholes. Now, we see that often today. That's what we expect today. This is a completely new idea. You go into these spaces and you are being walked through. You walk through an idea. You're being taken through a process like the Ignatian spiritual exercises, which were being practiced in this church and in just about all the churches in Rome and the Catholic world at this time. But again, that's another lecture. Right, so just to finish off, here's how I think this visual um, cycle worked. And this is complete hypothesis. If you want to get re um, reproductions of the images yourself and lay them out and come out with a pattern, that'd be great. Let me know what you think. So starting from the altar wall, so if you can imagine you're in the nave looking at the altar... What I think you would have looked at is the first of the frescoes, which is of St. Peter. And the text tells us that Peter the Apostle came to England and converts many people to Christ. Then we work through 33 other scenes of martyrdom. And the last one, which may possibly have appeared on the other side of the martyr's picture, is of Gregory XIII himself and the cardinal nephew Philippo Buoncompagni, presenting the current day students of the English College back to the martyr cycle. So you can see it's a continuous loop that we're doing round here. And I think it's uh, wonderful the way the um, Nicola Cicignani has echoed the position of the hands of Gregory XIII, um, mirroring the position of um, Thomas of Canterbury's hands. So it works right the way around the space of the church. Then looking at the nave of the, the church, how would these images have worked? The martyrdom of Edmund of East Anglia and of Thomas Canterbury particularly important for the history of the English college because they are two of the three dedications of the church. Now, there's a couple of possibilities for these two. I think quite possibly they could have been in, in the nave facing one another. 
so that you would have seen the two working across the nave together, almost in conversation. The central composition of Edmund of East Anglia, though, and if you count them out, it's possible that Edmund of East Anglia was on the entrance wall into the church facing the Holy Trinity with saints. So you've got these two dedications of the two hospices working in dialogue. There's a, di- a, a dialectical engagement going on here. But there's all sorts of connections being made, I think, between these different scenes, both artistically, visually, compositionally, but also in terms of the history. It's a very important, very ancient Pauline historical methodology that I think underlies this programme, and it's, it's typology. It's where you have one type, a royal saint, echoed in another saint, and then that takes you into another chain of stories and connections. These stories and connections are absolutely what brings the English college together. And you can see this still happening today, the stories that are told to the new students who go there, um, the relationship with William Allen being in Ushaw, the relationship, obviously, um, Ushaw um, Dowie is the first of Allen's colleges, all of these connections that, that are so rich and continue with us. In the new church, in Virginio Vespinani's church, the opportunity was taken to bring together the 16th and 19th century story in the same way that the frescoes do, this typology moving between. It's like like mapping. You're not looking at history as chronology. You're looking at a point that you recognise, and by occupying that point that you recognise, and it might be a point that's an idea, it might be a physical point, you can then relate to something that's further away from you. And then that enables you to move into something else. So it's, it's like understanding by mapping. It's quite a different um, kind of historical idea. Now, in the new church, in Virginio Vespignani's church, right at the end of the, the process, we've got a series of four murals, and this is two of them. First of all, Edmund Campion and his companions, including Robert Persons, meeting Carlo Borromeo, the great Archbishop of Milan, on their way back to England. And then the lower of the scenes, we have Pius VII in 1818, welcoming Robert Gradwell and Nicholas Wiseman back to Rome with the reopening of the college in 1818. And you can see there's a typology, it's a type here, where you've got the the cardinal, Carlo Borromeo, is a type for Pius VII and vice versa. Gradwell and particularly Nicholas Wiseman, because of what happens um, subsequently, are being paralleled with these first students of the English College. So even hardly half a century after the College had reopened in the 19th century, you have this mythology being constructed in the space of of the College itself. This historical retelling, it's not chronological again. It's a very clever mix and creation of history and myth in the most positive sense that equates to tradition. And it's entirely appropriate for the period in which the church was built. Now, paradoxically, I'm going to finish this art historical lecture with a slide that entirely comprises text, just because I'm trying to show you that I'm a really serious um, historian here. Now, you can still see these ideas about tradition, and I think for art historians, 
It's one of the challenges when we're looking particularly at religious works of art. And of course, Morse works of art in the Renaissance, early modern period, are religious. You wouldn't think that when you look at what art historians try to do with the Medici, for example. There's a very important historical pattern which runs counter to, I think, the way that we understand how art works today. Now, from the beginning of the 20th century, we have an idea that art equals form and content. It's a very philosophical idea. Please ask um, Ludmilla about this if you want to know any more detail about it. She'll understand a lot better than me. So the form is what artists do with content which is given to them from outside the picture. That's an idea that comes up at the beginning of the 20th century. It is completely not the case in the 16th through to the 19th century in Rome. This is what I think Giulio and Pagliotti are telling artists, are trying to define for artists and for thinkers in the 16th century. Artists are, yes, they might be working with text, but they're envisaging, they're embodying ideas, traditions, using the past and representing them in a way that takes you into the future. The whole point, though, is that it's images, it's not text. Artists are providing both the form and the content in the 16th century and into the 19th century, which you can see in these very different senses of what restoration is, the staging of a, of a new space. Now, Newman talks about this, in, particularly in his essay on the development of Christian doctrine, where he talks about a coming together of ideas, a coming together of a community um, which together works on tradition. He says, to quote, the theology of the church is a diligent, patient working out of one doctrine, out of many individuals. It's an unfolding idea in which we're all engaged. Now, Last point to bring back together the 16th century and actually the 20th century. I think one of the most important and challenging texts um, in terms of historical models in a Catholic context is the essay that Joseph Ratzinger, Benedict XVI, wrote about the um, Council of Trent. He wrote an essay in, 16, in 1966 sorry, about the Council of Trent and the idea of tradition as it's asserted at the Council of Trent. And he writes that in the middle of the Second Vatican Council. It's very interesting if you then look at what Benedict XVI does with Catholic tradition in his brief period as Pope. Incredibly interesting historical figure and historian in the person of Ratzinger. And it's all about this idea of tradition this idea of continuity, of the shared sense of understanding that's unfolding. It's about standing in a space and it's about making those connections for yourself. And I shall end there. Thank you very much.